Well, good morning. We are kind of at an odd schedule now because we're returning back to our study on Ephesians, which we have been in for a few weeks. So we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 3 today, but then next Sunday is Advent. I know, I can't believe it's already going to be here. Next Sunday is the beginning of the Advent season. And so we're going to break for that Advent season, and then in the new year we'll come back and finish up Ephesians. So we have kind of uh, just one more today, and then we'll take a little bit of break. But we will come back and finish it, and hopefully you'll come and join us, because I've really enjoyed going through Ephesians with you all. Last time we looked at Ephesians, we were looking at chapter 2, and this idea of grace that comes through faith, and how Paul encouraged us that this should lead to a unity in faith amongst believers. As he's writing to those in Ephesus, he's trying to encourage them that this grace that we've received should cause a unity amongst us. In chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, this is what Paul said. He said, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and who has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility." see, Paul knows the importance of unity amongst the church, and that's why it's a theme that we'll see come up again in our text today as well. But what a beautiful aspect to be looking at as we move into this holiday season, these ideas of unity that are underlying a lot of what Paul is encouraging believers to. But before we jump back into Ephesians, let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul's faithfulness in writing down what you, Holy Spirit, gave him to write. Lord, for keeping your word and maintaining it for us so that we can open it today. Lord, we are humbled to be able to learn from you, to have your words written down here that we can glean from, that we can grow through, so that we will become more like you. So Lord, may you give us open ears and soft hearts this morning, Lord, that we will receive what it is that you have to teach us through your word. And we thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for Paul's faithfulness, for the ways in which you used his life to bring glory to your name. And Lord, may you do the same with each one of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was thinking this week about different genres of books and movies out there, and I looked up what are the top-selling genres of books because I enjoy reading, and I enjoy reading in different areas. Sometimes I'll read Christian fiction. Sometimes I'll read Christian living books or historical books. Sometimes I like mysteries or crime novels. And I found out that the second most popular per dollar amount of sales of books is mysteries. They fall only behind the romance novels out there. And in fact, romance novels beat them by quite a bit. Romance novels bring in like $1.2 billion compared to the mystery novels that bring in about 700 and some million dollars. So romance novels far outsell them, but mystery novels I can get on board with a little bit more than the romance novels. I don't know about you, but I like a good mystery. I like watching a film or reading a book where there's an aspect of mystery to it. You're trying to figure out what's going on. In fact, I was looking this week at some of the most well-known mysteries throughout history. One of the top ten actually took place here in the Pacific Northwest. It's the story of D.B. Cooper, and perhaps you've heard of D.B. Cooper, but that's a famous mystery about a man who robbed a bunch of money and a plane and jumped out of the plane never to be seen again. 
And it's a mystery. What happened to that man, D.B. Cooper? Another well-known mystery that's captivated audience around the world was a few years back, the disappearance of the Malaysian Airlines Flight 370. And these instances like this show us how much people are intrigued by mystery because people follow these stories. They become subsects of people who are trying to spend their time figuring out these mysteries, researching what could have happened, giving their hypothesis of what perhaps happened to those people or to D.B. Cooper. People love a good mystery. They captivate audiences. They entice people. And people want to know how they can solve the mysteries. Well, today, the Apostle Paul has a mystery for us this morning in Ephesians chapter 3. The difference, though, between Paul's mystery and one like D.B. Cooper is that Paul is going to give us the solution to his mystery. Paul is going to be sharing what this mystery is as it unfolds for us so that we can learn more about Christ. So if you would turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to be parking in Ephesians 3 verses 1 through 13 this morning. So Paul starts off chapter 3 and he says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Now I'm going to pause right there because one thing that we see here and that scholars have uh, realized is that what Paul's doing when he says for this reason is he's actually about to pray for the Ephesians. We covered Paul's first prayer for the Ephesians earlier in the book and now this is Paul's second prayer for them. At first when I read this I thought that doesn't sound like much of a prayer. Why do they think that Paul's starting a prayer for the Ephesians? But the reason that they believe that is because in verse 14 at the end of this section, Paul once again uses those exact words and says, for this reason, and then launches into a prayer. So really what we have here is like a giant parenthesis around verses 2 through 13. It's Paul's rabbit trail where he's going off and talking about something else before he comes back to pray for the Ephesians. He gets sidetracked, expanding upon the mystery of what he's going to be praying for in verse 14. Paul does this because he wants to tell the Ephesians about this mystery that's been revealed to his heart. He wants to let them know that he's going to be praying that what's been revealed to him would also be revealed to the Ephesians, that they would know too the mystery. And in this opening, Paul's also referencing his current standing, which I found so interesting Because we've talked about the fact that Paul is in prison when he's writing Ephesians. And we see that right here that Paul says, a prisoner, and yet, look at who Paul is a prisoner of. Paul says, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And yet, if any soldier would have been standing around while Paul dictated this to a scribe, they would have thought, wait a second, you're not a prisoner of Christ, you're a prisoner of Rome, you're a prisoner of Caesar. That's why you're in prison. And yet, Paul knew that that really wasn't who controlled everything. That really wasn't the reason he was in prison was Rome or Caesar, but it was because of Christ Jesus, his Lord and Savior. That that is who Paul's allegiance lies with, and that is who is in control of Paul and his life. Paul had been in many situations where he found himself even in prison before, and yet watched as the Lord miraculously provided him a way out of that prison. And so Paul knows that there's nothing that Caesar or Rome can do to keep him in prison unless if the Lord wills it as well. So Paul knows that he is not a prisoner of Rome, but he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And look at why he's a prisoner 
for Christ Jesus. It says, for the sake of you Gentiles. Paul knows that he's in prison because he's been preaching the gospel message, because he's been spreading the news about the risen Christ Jesus, his Lord and Savior, and not just to the Jews, but he's been teaching it to the Gentiles as well, because that's the calling that Paul received in his life was that he would preach the good news to the Gentiles, that he would share that good news of Christ Jesus coming to die for them as well as for the Jewish people as well. So that's how Paul starts off chapter 3. Jumping back into verse 2, he says, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. In reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. So Paul, as he sidetracks before this prayer, he's talking to the Ephesians and he's letting them know that you've probably heard about the grace that I received from God. And what Paul's referring to here, if you don't recall Paul's life story, is that Paul was a Jew. He was high up in the religious elect and he was one who helped persecute Christians. In fact, he had just received permission to go and to go to Damascus and to pull Christians out of their homes, those who profess themselves as believers in Jesus in the way, and to put them in prison for that faith. In fact, we know that Paul was there at the stoning of, of Stephen the Apostle, and that when people were getting ready to stone Stephen, they came and they laid their cloaks at Paul's feet, which was not only a sign of his authority, but it was a sign of his blessing upon what they were doing in that moment. So Paul has led this life, and yet on the road to Damascus, he has this encounter that is life-changing. And maybe you've had an encounter that's life-changing as well. Maybe you were on a certain trajectory or path that was not good, that was away from the Lord, away from His grace, and He pulled you out of that muck and mire and gave you a second chance. And that's what happened with Paul. He was on a trajectory that was not God-honoring, even though he thought it was. It was really going against Christ, and yet, in His grace, Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus and lets him know, Paul, you're persecuting me. And Paul's life does a complete shift and change as Paul now goes about preaching the good news of who Christ Jesus is, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. And so Paul lets them know here that they've probably heard about that grace that he was given on the road to Damascus, that experience that we see talked about, if you want to read about that experience, it's in Acts chapter 9. Paul continues in verse 3 and begins to unpack the idea of this mystery that he's talking about by connecting the grace that God gave him with the idea of a mystery that's been made known. You see, Paul understands that what was made known to him has not always been known, that it was a mystery to many. Paul's been given this insight into the mystery of Christ, even though other generations hadn't known it, even though people have wondered what that would be, how Christ would be revealed, how God would redeem Israel. You see, that's what's been wondered about for years. 
as humanity entered into the world created by God, as the fall occurred and sin came about, and as God gave the law to Moses and the Israelites as a way to set them right, to place them in right standing before him as they would make sacrifices. And yet, all along throughout the history, there is this uh, movement coming that they are looking forward to of a time when things would be restored, at a time when Israel would be redeemed, at a time when they wouldn't need to make the sacrifices, when there would be a Messiah who would come and set things right. And throughout Scripture, we see this mystery being revealed a little bit more and more as we go along. And there's an anticipation building for the Messiah. And that's something we're going to be talking about in the coming weeks. That's one of the things I love about Advent, is that it's built around the anticipation of Christ Jesus being born. And so we spend December, the tail end of November some years, building that anticipation toward the celebration of Christ's birth. What a joyous thing. And so Paul's letting them know here that even though throughout past generations that mystery has been had given glimpses of, it has not been fully revealed until Christ comes. And in Christ's death and resurrection, we see fully the mystery of salvation revealed. In verse 6, Paul continues to unpack this and tells them the mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. Now, this would have been a shocker to any Jew who was listening to this because they were God's chosen people. They were set apart for God. And they really kind of had disdain for those who weren't God's chosen people. Oftentimes, they looked down upon the Gentiles as those who were uncircumcised, who were outside of God's elect chosen people. And yet now, Paul lets them know the mystery of the gospel is that the Jews and the Gentiles both are saved in Christ Jesus. Not only saved, but they're both heirs to Christ Jesus and to what God has in store. The mystery is revealed. The fact that the Gentiles are co-heirs with Israel, no longer second-rate citizens, no longer those who are to be looked down upon or looked as outside of God's grace, but they are now, in Christ, welcomed in. Now, that would have been a hard pill to swallow for some Jews, but that would have been glorious news to some Gentiles as well who are pursuing after the Lord. This idea that they are heirs together, members of one body, Paul says, shares in the promise of Christ. Just think about those words and the picture that Paul is creating here. Heirs, members, sharers in the promise of Christ. There is no longer a division between Jew and Gentile. There is no longer God's chosen who are set apart and then everybody else. But now in Christ Jesus, all who profess their faith in Him as Lord and Savior, all who come to Him as their Lord and Savior and receive salvation, receive forgiveness for our sins, that we all are welcomed in and we all become heirs and members and sharers in the promise of Christ. Now, I'm not a Jew, and so to me, this is great news, and I get excited when I read this because to me, that is the most beautiful news I can hear. That in Christ Jesus, no matter what my past is, no matter where I've been, no matter what mistakes I've made, no matter how I've fallen short, that if I come to Christ, if I ask His forgiveness, if I profess Him as Lord of my life, 
that I can receive his free grace given to me because of what he did upon the cross. And that I will be redeemed and welcomed in as an heir to the king. What beautiful news that we can receive today. What beautiful news that many of us have received. And if you haven't, I would encourage you to take the time to assess what I'm saying, to look at what is offered to you in the forgiveness of your sins through Christ Jesus. Well, Paul lets us know in verse 7 that it's because of this mystery that's been revealed to him by Christ on the road to Damascus that he became a servant of the gospel. That because of God's grace that he showed to him, because Paul's firsthand knowledge of the power of the gospel as he saw his life turn around, that it's taken him from one who was persecuting God and his church to one who is now in prison for sharing that very same gospel that he once persecuted. What a beautiful way in which the Lord has moved in his life. And so Paul knows that it's because of this mystery that he is in chains. It's because of who Christ is and that he is a servant of the Lord, that he is willing, gladly, joyfully to be in chains for Christ Jesus. Makes us pause and evaluate what are we willing to do for the sake of our Lord and Savior? What are we willing to endure for the sake of the gospel What hardships and tribulation are we willing to go through in order to proclaim the good news that has changed our lives? You see, this news is not something to just receive and keep to ourselves or just put on a shelf in our homes or just keep in our Bibles, but it's something to proclaim with our words, with our lives, with everything that we are. No matter what the cost We as followers of Christ are called to be those who share the good news with those around the world. And so to me, when I read this passage, when I read about Paul's life, it is an encouragement and an exhortation as to how I am to live my life, of how I am to speak of the Lord and the hope that I have in him. And I am encouraged by Paul and by what the Lord does with those who are willing servants to his cause. And what a glorious thing that is. Picking up in verse 8, Paul continues and lets the Ephesians know, although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. So Paul acknowledges what the Lord's grace has done in his life, recognizing that he was least of all the Lord's people. And we see Paul do this multiple times throughout his writings. It's a way in which Paul is showing his depravity, that before he came to the Lord Jesus as his Lord and Savior, that he was the least of all of these. And he knows that his sin was great, and yet God's grace was given to him. God's grace was greater than even Paul's worst sin. 
And that's the beauty of the gospel message that we seek to share with others, is that no matter what your past is, no matter what you've been through, no matter what trials you've had, no matter what failures you've had, no matter what wrongs you've committed, that God's grace is enough. That you too can experience the goodness of God as your Lord and Savior and the grace of Jesus Christ extended to you no matter what your sins and past may be because it is enough. This is the beautiful gift from God and the beautiful gift for all who call upon the name of Jesus Christ. And the result of this in Paul's life was a calling to preach this good news to the Gentiles, to show them the riches of Christ. I love that phrase, the riches of Christ, because it just in your mind should bring about this picture of how valuable Christ is, the worth, the weight of Christ and the grace that he gives us is far greater than anything we could imagine. So Paul continues in verse 9, letting them know that this calling to preach to the Gentiles was to show them these boundless riches of Christ, and that he was called also to make known the mystery that's been kept hidden. And that mystery that we referenced already is that both Jew and Gentile are invited into Christ Jesus to receive salvation in him. And so Paul's calling is to make that known, to go to the Gentiles and let them know that they too can receive salvation in Christ Jesus. This mystery that the Lord has revealed to Paul, this mystery that's been hidden for a long time and is now fully revealed, it's a beautiful thing and it's awesome to see God's plan for humanity unfolding, a plan that has been in place since before time existed. And yet throughout Scripture, we see it unfolding little by little until Christ appears and we see the whole picture that in Christ, in His grace, He brought about a freedom for us from the division of the law that was in place and that He brought a unity between Jew and Gentile. The intent of God's plan was to make known His manifold wisdom. We see that right there in verse 10. It says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Now, this verse sometimes confuses people because they think, well, it must be the church's job to preach to the angels or to preach to the heavens that we need to start changing how we preach. And the reality is what Paul is saying here is that as the church is used by God, as we live out our purpose that the aroma from us will be known to others, it will be made known even to those in the heavenly realms, and that God will show himself through the church. I love how E.F. Scott puts it as he provides some helpful insight on the meaning here. He says, The hostile powers had sought to frustrate the work of God, and they believed that they had succeeded when they conspired against Christ and brought about his crucifixion. But unwittingly, they had been mere instruments in God's hands. The death of Christ had been the very means he had devised for the accomplishment of his plan. So it is here declared that the hostile powers, after their brief apparent triumph, had now become aware of a divine wisdom that they had never dreamed of. They saw the church arising as a result of Christ's death and giving effect to what they could now perceive to have been the hidden purpose of God. Now the cool thing is that we get to be a part of that as we as the church live out who we're called to be, as we live out being followers of Jesus Christ, it will be made known to others the wisdom of God through what he accomplishes in his church. 
That's why the church is so important. That's why the church is named the bride of Christ and has a place of prominence throughout history. And that's why we can't neglect the church either. That's why there's an importance in what occurs here on a Sunday morning or whenever a church meets, when they gather together as a group of believers. There's something that happens in the Lord's presence that's a beautiful thing and a beautiful witness to those outside the church of the wisdom of God. Verse 11, Paul continues letting the Ephesians know that this is according to the eternal purposes that God accomplished through Jesus our Lord. That this was a beautiful, life-altering plan that's fulfilled and accomplished in Christ Jesus alone. In verse 12, Paul wraps it up, his thought, by letting them know that it is in Christ, through a faith in Him, that we are given a freedom and a confidence now to come before God. That we are to move to living in freedom and confidence, knowing that in Christ that we are forgiven for our sins, that we are made right to approach God. And Paul wraps up this section in verse 13, saying, I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul concludes this tangent before jumping into his prayer for the Ephesians by asking them not to be discouraged. He's told them that they're part of the reasons why he's in prison because he's been preaching this gospel message to the Gentiles, but he doesn't want them to be discouraged because he is suffering. And Paul has suffered. We know throughout Paul's life that he was imprisoned multiple times, that he was beaten, that he was ostracized by others, all for the sake of sharing the gospel. What are we willing to do to share the gospel? Do we have a desire ingrained within us to share this hope that it doesn't matter what harm may come our way? What difficulties may arise, but we must share the gospel message? Do we have that burning within us as Paul does? I don't know about you, but I know that there's been times in my life where I don't. Where I know the hope of Christ, and yet that is not burning within me to share it with others in the way that it should be. And so those are times for me to go to the Lord in prayer and to say, Lord, That's not how I want to live my life. That's not how I see the apostles, the disciples, and my Lord and Savior Jesus living while on earth. And so ignite that desire within me. Rekindle that desire to share the glorious news that I've experienced firsthand. And give me opportunities and the faith to walk forward in those opportunities to share the hope that I have in you, Christ. I love getting to dig into Paul's writings and even these odd tangents where he goes off that have a purpose for us to understand this mystery that is revealed to Paul and thus we see too today. This glorious news that both Jew and Gentile are brought together in Christ and can receive this salvation because of Christ Jesus. So what do we do with this mystery? How does it propel us forward in our walk with Jesus and in living as Christians in this day and age? I think one of the things that we see here in Paul's text and the writings elsewhere in Ephesians is this idea of a unity in Christ that is so important, that is so crucial to living out our faith. In one of Aesop's fables, he describes an old man who had several sons who were always falling out with one another. He had often but to no purpose exhorted them to live together in harmony. 
And so one day he called them all together and he gathered a bundle of sticks and tied them together and asked them, each one of them, to try to break it. Each one tried as hard as he could, but to no avail. They couldn't break the bundle of sticks. Then the father cut the cord that he had tied them together with and told his sons to break them separately. This was done with the greatest of ease. He then said, see, my sons, the power of unity bound together the greatest can be accomplished. Bound together, they can defy mortal danger, but divided, you will fall prey to your enemies, he said. In Ecclesiastes 4.12, we see a verse that I've heard Alan often quote around here, which is a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. You see, there's an importance in unity that Paul is aware of as he writes this message to the Ephesians. He sees it brought about through what Christ did upon the cross as he broke down those walls of division. This should cause us to seek out unity as well. Unity amongst our church, unity amongst believers in Christ Jesus. To maintain the focus upon Christ, upon sharing the gospel and upon making disciples. And when we are able to do this, we will see a power of unity amongst the church that is not easily broken, And that becomes a sweet aroma to those outside the church as well. Second thing I want to point out in Paul's writing today is this aspect of suffering. Paul closes this section by telling the Ephesians to not be discouraged by the suffering that Paul is going through. And yet in our day and age, we run from suffering. We try to get as far away from suffering as we can. And yet there is a beauty that happens in suffering. There is something that occurs when we go through trials, when we're in that moment of suffering in which we receive the comfort of the Lord. And Paul uses his suffering as an opportunity to encourage the Ephesians. I was reminded this week as I was thinking about suffering of the story of a young mom, Kara Tippetts, who lived in Colorado Springs, who had four children. And in her mid-30s, she was diagnosed with stage four breast, breast cancer, and her husband was a pastor and they had four young kids. And she passed away from that sickness. And yet, in the midst of her decline, she used that opportunity to speak hope to people, to declare the importance of suffering and God's goodness in the midst of suffering. In fact, she got some national attention because this was at the same time that another young woman who had been diagnosed with brain cancer was choosing the right to die and assisted suicide. And Kara wrote an open letter to her, encouraging her that there was a beauty in suffering and in seeing God in the midst of our suffering. This is a quote that Kara said that I think is so encouraging. She said, My hope is not in the absence of suffering and comfort returned. My hope is in the presence of the one who promises never to leave or forsake. The one who declares nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. Nothing. So may we be encouraged that a life with Christ does not equal a life without suffering. And that when we go through those trials and those times of suffering, that it is an opportunity to glorify God. And when suffering comes, rather than always look for a quick way out, that we may look for how we can proclaim God's goodness and give Him glory in the midst of our suffering. As we trust in His provision, as we continue to rest in His goodness. And it won't be easy. It's not an easy path, but it is a beautiful path.
and is one that the world takes notice of. Kara Tippett's got a lot of attention as she suffered with a beauty and a grace that only could be attributed to God's work in her life. And people took notice. People wanted to know how she had hope in the midst of suffering, how she could have hope telling her kids that she wouldn't be around to watch them grow up. And that gave her an opportunity to preach the gospel and to proclaim how her hope was in Christ alone. My last point for today is that Paul's text encourages us that we are to minister in the power of Christ. And you may be thinking, I don't know, who am I to minister for Christ? I, I don't have the skill set. I don't know enough. I'm not one to proclaim Christ in that way or to talk to others about Christ or to share my faith in that way. I'll leave that to people who are really gifted in that manner. And yet I believe that all who follow Jesus as their Lord and Savior are ministers of the gospel. I want to share with you this illustration that I read because I think it relates to what we're talking about. So if you ever go to the south coast of England, I hope you get a chance to stare out over the English Channel and imagine what happened there in the spring of 1940. Hitler had the Allied forces in a corner and was getting ready to invade Great Britain. His troops were closing in on the Allies in what was going to be an easy kill. Nearly a quarter million young British soldiers and over 100,000 Allied troops faced capture or death, and the Royal Navy could only save a small fraction of this number. But then a bizarre fleet of ships appeared on the horizon of the English Channel. Trawlers, tugs, fishing sloops, lifeboats, sailboats, pleasure crafts, an island ferry named Gracie Fields, and even the American Cup Challenger Endeavor, all manned by civilian sailors, sped to the rescue. The ragtag armada eventually rescued 338,000 682 men and returned them home to the shores of England as the pilots of the Royal Air Force jockeyed with the German Lutzwaffe in the skies above the channel. It was one of the most remarkable naval operations in history, and yet it didn't involve warships or destroyers. It involved trawlers and pleasure crafts. And for those few days, there were more than trawlers and fishing boats, and they could put up with all kinds of trials because they had a purpose. And you can have the same thing in your life. It's the gospel that gives us purpose, that we're a part of something much bigger, even in our trials. You see, God wants to use you right where you are, exactly as who you are as a follower of Jesus. Don't waste any time. Don't waste your life, but be part of what he is doing. Look for the ways in which the Lord is calling you to disciple others for the ways in which you can follow Jesus with authentic faith and be used by him to proclaim his hope to others. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your skill set is or what your story is or what gifts you possess or perhaps what deficiencies you feel. Jesus is your Lord and he is looking to use you to spread his message of hope and redemption. I love how Pastor Ray Ortland puts it, stating, Don't waste your life in the false peace of worldly comfort and small ambition and being cool. Jesus is looking for gospel hooligans who want to get messy and relevant and involved. He wants to use you for the advance of the gospel. And don't miss out. Don't settle for a life that won't matter forever. Do you want people to say at your funeral, What a nice person, and that's it? Your life can count 
for many people forever. All he asks of you, all you can do is keep listening to him moment by moment and then take your next step, whatever it might be. You provide your weakness and need. He provides his strength, his wisdom, and everything. And if we will together live that way on mission, we will experience what only God can do. I love that quote. I love where he says that we provide our weakness and our need, and he provides his strength, his wisdom, and his everything. It's such a reminder that we don't operate out of our own strength, that we don't operate out of who we are, but who he is. And the beauty is we have the Holy Spirit within us who will give us the words, who will move through us, who will open doors for us. So as we head out from here this morning into one of the busiest seasons of the year with Thanksgiving this week and Christmas following soon after, may we not lose sight of the mystery of Christ revealed. May we not forget the love that we have received and may we not stop short of letting that move us to minister to others in the name of Jesus Christ this season. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for the ways you have worked in our lives and moved already, for the hope that you have given us, for the lives that you have changed in our midst. But Lord, may that not be the end of our story. May that not be where it stops, but Lord, may we step forward in faith saying, here I am, Father. Use me to your glory. Lord, we want to be used by you. As individuals, as a church, we want to be used by you. There are so many people out there who don't know you. So many people who are living in darkness and without hope. And yet, Lord, we know who hope is. We know where the light is. So, Lord, may we be men and women who will point people to the light. And Lord, may you provide those divine opportunities that you have orchestrated where we can share the hope of you with those around us. We thank you, Lord, for the grace that you have given us. We thank you for the ways in which you have unified this church. Lord, may we be a sweet aroma to the city and the state around us. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.